Tyson Drake worked as a head of marketing, chief marketing at uh, an eight, nine figure brand. Tyson Drake has worked under a VC firm for paid media and uh, paid search uh, marketing. And more recently, Tyson posted on Twitter a dashboard that he's been building with data scientists for over 12 years that combines all of the metrics that we've come to love and hate in e-commerce. Contribution margin, gross margin, AMR, everything is in there. But in addition to that, he's also created some visualizations that take into account things like survey results, percentage spent by channel, and he claims that it is one of the most accurate ways to present data in e-commerce from multiple sources. That could be from someone like Northbeam, it could be from uh, the Meta platforms, it can be from Shopify, but all of it is amalgamated into this incredible dashboard that he says is the best in the biz. So in today's show, which is a two-part show, in part one, we discuss his background, uh, his experience working at a VC model where they actually had 100 people on staff that they would implement into invested brands, uh, and also his experience growing a massively successful brand and how he came to create this incredible scorecard. And then we talk about the scorecard itself, breaking it down and trying to get an understanding of how it operates, how it works. And really for me, is it too good to be true? Because it caught fire on Twitter and I just really wanted to understand, is this a golden or silver bullet to all of our DTC uh, data decision-based making problems? So that is all to come on the e-commerce gold podcast brought to you by Sendlane, brought to you by Rewind. Go and check them out. Links in the show notes. Sendlane email marketing, SMS and reviews. Rewind the protection suite for your store, backups, staging site and more. Welcome, Tyson, to the e-commerce gold podcast. How are you doing today, sir? Thanks, Finn. Appreciate you having me on. We got an Aussie on today, folks. Usually... We're blessed with the States, but today in Aussie, which is much closer to my current time zone, whereabouts in Australia are you right now? We're in Adelaide, South Australia. I think it's plus 10 and a half, 10.5. Yeah. Um, I don't even know my own time zone. Plus 10.5 <laughs> is the standard of the 10. Yeah. Well, most yeah. of the listeners of this yeah. show are American or Canadian, and we talk from time to time about other markets because they do exist, people. There are markets outside of the US. Uh, just give us a bit of an insight into the Australian e-commerce scene. Like, what's it like down there? Let us let us know. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some pretty big brands down here. Um, maybe people are familiar with the Udi, uh, the big oversized robot blanket. I was the fraction. Of, I, I was the CMO of the Udi um, uh, for when I was there, and I was the head of digital as well. So that that might be one of the, the more known ones. Um, what? What else? Uh, they're based in Adelaide as well. So, um, what, what else? I'm just trying to um, think. Um, well, I know Amazon's uh, pretty. It's either big down there or it's not big. I can't remember now. No, it, it is. It is. But we, we do have some of our own, own marketplace. Amazon entered the market maybe five six years ago. Um, uh, High Smile. Oh, you got High Smile down there. Yeah, nice. Um, or, or Smile Direct. I mean, I'm mm. I'm I'm not really um super. Like connected with the with the local scene, or um smile smile yeah I'm not really super connected with the local scene. Um most of my uh, work that I do is more internationally. Like I've actually had more international experience. I spent some time in Berlin, worked for a venture capital firm, uh, mostly in direct to consumer and marketplaces. Um uh, I, I now run my own fractional CMO consultancy. Uh, all my clients are overseas. We are overseas, so they're. Over over the sea, <laughs> uh, <Asping laughs> Ireland. Um, 
so, so uh, yeah, I don't really. Um, I, I mean, we do have a vibrant scene, um, but um, I'm just not massively a part of it. That's all. There, there, there is lots of commerce, <laughs> lots of commerce in Australia. Um, in terms of market, it's very similar to uh, UK and the US. Like um, in terms of e-commerce penetration rate, you're looking at like maybe close, like fifteen percent in ten to fifteen percent range. Um, so a lot of people, when they, a lot of people have to internationalize pretty quickly as well. So Australia is only like 25 million population. So you, you really have to think about how you're going to expand outside of Australia. I mean, what's that size of Cali, um, or, or like a bit under the size of California. So you really have to think, okay, what markets am I going into? How am I going to internationalize? How am I going to handle you know, 3PLs internationally, how am I going to handle marketing in, internationally? Um, and, and typically it's like, you know, Australians want to crack the US market because that's where, that's really where the scale, Everyone the massive scale comes from. It's, 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 you know, you crack the US market, um, you try and crack, um, UK, um, and, and Canada, New Zealand. They're like, they're like the big, the big tiers that you try and, and crack. Um, so, so yeah, that's, um, a bit of, what what our market is like, I guess, but um, it's it's very um, we we have our own currency as well. For those of you who don't know, the the Australian dollar. So please don't think we're on the pound, <laughs> being a you know being part of the the colony or um, you know we or, or the US dollar. We ha- we do have our own currency. Yeah, and you have some pretty stringent speed limits as well. And you've got, like you said, a sparse population. I think kind of peak time in somewhere like Perth, there's about 12 people walking around the streets. So uh, that combination of kind of sparse uh, open areas and speed limits, delivery times pretty good in Australia or? Uh, it's definitely it's definitely as mature as the US. So, so like Amazon has really conditioned everyone in the US to, to expect fast delivery, next same day, next day delivery. We don't really have that uh, in in Australia due to the the, the spread. Um, it's getting a lot better, um, but the infrastructure uh, just needs to be built out a bit more. You know, same. You know, a few days delivery is accept- acceptable. You, or, p- people will accept delivery within, you know, same week is acceptable. Um, you know, with with supply chain being the issue during COVID, I think it kind of taught people to be a bit more patient as to as to when. They get their products. Um, some groceries are same day delivery. The, the grocery networks are pretty built out, but um, yeah, one to two days delivery is is pretty standard, I think. And Amazon just keeps pushing the barrier, right? Amazon Amazon keeps investing in the infrastructure, pushing the barrier with what's expected. You know, means they can um, get more prime customers for for the service they offer with delivery, free delivery, and you know the firewall keeps moving, but. I think e-com has to work a little bit, little bit harder. Um, you having to rely on their their third-party delivery or, or whatever is offered in the market market of any um, any country. Yeah, well, it's a real pleasure as well, Tyson, to speak to a fractional CMO because there's not that many of you knocking around. Um, I remember a time where the fractional concept sort of came into the the spotlight and everyone was sort of talking about fractional CFOs and fractional but fractional CMO I think is a bit harder of a of a um something to convince a founder of I guess just because of the nature of marketing and, and advertising in general. How have you found it being a fractional? And obviously we're going to talk today about the value, some of the value that you have in your back pocket, but how have you found being a fractional CMO? 
Yeah, I'm fine. Like, like I, I was introduced to the concept of a fractional CMO in 2015. I used to work in a venture capital firm called Project A Ventures. For those of you who don't know, Project A, they're based in Berlin, um, and they they unlike a traditional VC firm, they have like you know where we'd have like three or four managing directors, and you know that they they give you some money. And they maybe sit on your board and, and give you some advice. We, we, the firm that I was part of Project Day was quite significantly different. We had like a hundred person operational team, everything from business intelligence to performance marketing to HR recruitment, um, to business development, uh, product, you know, front end dev, back end dev, uh, you know, venture, venture team, et cetera. So, so we're basically like a full stack. Um, investment firm. And the thesis was that to provide operational expertise um, would, would increase portfolio companies' chances of success. When I was there, we had about, I was a part of three, four, three, four, five exits, meaning that I worked on companies that then went on to exit while I was there. And then since then, maybe another five of those companies that I worked on had gone on to be acquired. And so, so back to the fractional CMO point. Um, I, I was uh, specific in the performance marketing team. And so the performance marketing team consisted of your traditional performance marketing team, you know, paid search, uh, Facebook, or, or like, you know, media buying, um, CRM, retention, um, and uh, affiliate marketplaces. And leading the team, you know, and, and then we have like the different, you know, the juniors, the, the mid-levels, the seniors, and then the heads of, of those teams, SEO. And then, of course, you need like a leader of the team, right? And so, of course, that's like the CMO. And so, we had the CMO uh, of Project A Ventures um, sit in the performance marketing team, and they they would, um, I guess, out uh, like contract their CMO services to the different portfolio companies that we would invest in. And and we mostly had a bias at the time towards direct to consumer and uh, marketplaces, so, so e-commerce. The, the 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 founding managing directors were ex Rocket Internet, so think. Um, HelloFresh and Zalando um, were, were Rocket Internet, and so so at the at the firm we did three things. We we incubated our own uh, portfolio companies from scratch. So think think about like looking around and seeing gaps in the market, having a thesis, and then you know testing that with some capital, um, running some experiments, uh, and, and then if we had some success with whatever the hypothesis and thesis was, we'd go on to like invest some seed round. Uh, our own capital into that, the, the firm's own capital, not, not my capital, the, the firm's own capital into that. And then, and then, um, you know, if that goes well, hire a team, uh, and just scale it out as you would a normal startup. So that's like the, the incubation projects. Um, the second part was like, you know, uh, seed the series A rounds where we'd partner with other VC firms and they'll bring us deals and then we'd go on to, um, you know, co-invest with them, but also more, more, more specifically, which sets apart, we would, um, be we, we would either help them uh you know n- now you've got this few million dollars in your series a how do you deploy it you know what what's the media mix that you should be thinking about depending on the type of business you are you know if you're like a marketplace you're probably more a bit more focused on improving demand capture um ver- versus really scaling in, into tv and create a, a create awareness at like at like the series a level versus like um someone has an entirely new product doesn't have any awareness no one's typing their product into google you have to create that awareness somehow so probably a bit more top of the funnel marketing so it would help them think through the media mix um if they didn't have any team in place we would be their team so we'd we'd go in and actually do the work 
um, and we'd work similar, something like an agency does. Where I, I was at any given time, I was probably working on about two or three different um, venture investments, portfolio companies. And um, the third thing we, oh, and, and if they did have a team, we would go in and like kind of uh, help change man, like help uh, help guide through change management, whereby we would either help up upskill the 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 people who are already in the team. Um, and, and train them and help them get better and add more as like a head of position for them. Um, and, and then like maybe retrain them, um, in some of the frameworks, standards that we had and templates. Um, and then we'd like slowly fade out. Um, and then the third thing we did was that similar model, but with private equity firms. So EQT from Sweden, top 10 private equity firm in the world, um, under, uh, funds under management or AUM. They would, uh, they would buy companies. Um, and one of the, one of the companies they bought while I was there was this, this German auto parts um, distributor, this online German parts distributor with like a few hundred thousand different um, SKUs. And uh, so they would acquire that firm and then they'll go here, um, Product Day, we need you to um, grow it for us. And so so in that place, you know, you already have 100 people in the company and, and they're doing, you know, a few hundred million uh, euros a year. Um, then you'd have the senior people go in like a, like a, a fractional CMO at the time um, and then she'd bring the team in and then would would report under her um, and she'd work with the exact team there. So so that's the long answer of like um, when I was first introduced to the concept of fractional CMO. It was in 2015 with the venture capital firm I worked for. And it's pretty it was pretty common in Berlin where you have like all this massive startup scene, um, lots of Rocket Inter and Project A investments, uh, lots of fractional CMOs who just um, – were part of that rocket internet or product day ecosystem and, you know, got, got a ton of experience under the belt. And then I, I didn't, and I always thought it was an interesting model because, um, you, you, you have to choose who you work with, um, which I do now. Um, and, uh, I, I only take on like two or three clients at a time. I don't, I don't want to, um, you know, the, the mental switching costs for the type of work that we do is pretty intense, I think. So, um, I never want to take on like five, 10 clients. It's always two or three, really go deep and like provide as much value as I can. And I've been doing that for, um, probably six months properly now that I've actually called it a fractional CMO. Um, we decided to be like, Oh, actually it's a fractional. I think, I think what I'm doing is similar to what my, my framework or reference was back in 2015. I think that's the same work I'm doing. So. I'll just call it that because I think that's pretty the same. And, and it's a pretty, it's a pretty broad spectrum. So you have like, you know, uh, everything from OKRs in the team to like, um, how do you do marketing ops? Um, how do you do like change management? Um, like how do you identify gaps and who are the people we need to hire? Um, so, so that's why it's not generally like a performance marketing role because I'm not in the ad accounts. I'm not, I, I mean, my background is like in, in Google ads and, and Facebook, but, um, uh, even affiliate, but, um, I'm not like in the accounts making, making changes. So I don't think it's fair for me to call me like a performance marketing manager or anything like that. Um, you know, I do a, a leadership. I run meetings with the team, uh, help the exec, executive team like arrive at decisions. Um, so I, th- I think, I think that the, the work that I do fits, fits the title. I imported uh, a bulk import of products into Shopify and I did not put in the meta fields the created date and, uh, that sent the whole filtering system haywire because you could no longer filter by collect filter collections by newest in first uh, or, or date added to the website which was a really big problem for this quite large fashion brand 
if I didn't have Rewind, that would have been a complete pickle. It would have taken hours, if not days, to sort out all of the while these products are live and really messing up their merchandising. A mistake by me, absolutely. But fortunately, I had the foresight to install Rewind before I made any of these changes. And I was able to just click a button, restore the site back to a previous version just a few minutes before I made that fatal error. And no one was any the wiser. That's the value of Rewind. That's just one use case, okay? One use case. There are hundreds of other use cases. Have it on there because when you need it, you'll text me or you'll tweet me and say, thank you so much, Finn, for recommending that I installed Rewind. You saved my bacon. Back to today's show. How, how did you find? I'm really interested to know a bit more about that, Tyson, because I, straight away when you were talking, one of the things that popped into my head was if I was one of these founders, um, I, how would I feel about uh, another team? Essentially, the psychological yeah. aspect of that yeah. is we're better at this than you are. So in we come. And uh, that's got to have some ramifications. But I, I then thought, well, the, probably yeah. the flip side of that is, is they have a choice to choose that VC investment, but hopefully. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Uh, absolutely. Uh, so that they, I guess you end up with the ones that end up wanting that. Is that the case? Did you end up with that? And if that is the case, do you think the model worked? Yeah. So I was there from 2014 to October, 2016 from memory. And you're exactly right that the, the type of founders that would come that that would approach project day, you know, they would self-select themselves for, I've seen operationally what they're capable of. Um, like the founder would be like, okay, I, I know what project they're capable of. I'm aware of the team um, and, and what they've done. Um, uh, and uh, therefore they would want that expertise. It, it's more like, I know what they're capable of. I want that. I want my company to, like my company needs that. Um, I'm going to choose them as a, VC to invest. Hopefully they do invest because they like what that, like what we see. But, but, um, they're mostly coming to Project Day because they actually want the expertise that is, that was, um, that, that was available. And not only that, like Project Day, uh, didn't have to take on, uh, you know, any investments that they didn't want to, you know, we, we see hundreds of investments a year. Uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd be getting, um, deals to look at, um, all, all the time and helping them, uh, order order accounts so so companies would would unlike um maybe maybe it's more common now but before like the, they would open up their accounts and be like okay we're doing some due diligence on this investment can you please do a deep dive on um on their paid search accounts look at how it's structured and, and what we're looking for is like does it have potential for like what is the uplift potential for when we would um not take over, but for when we would work closely with the team, what is the uplift potential uh, across, across the board? Um, you know, if things are so, like structured really well, if, if things are, are running um, like really smoothly and um, at a very high level, um, very high level of execution, then maybe that might not be the best investment for us. Or maybe it's, maybe it's just an awesome team and it's a rocket shit. And yeah, we actually do want to make that. And we play, we, we take on more of an advisory role rather than do the work role. So, so it depends on the stage, if it's a seed stage or series A. Usually the case is that they have a one person, if it's a series A, usually the case is they have a generalist in the team who's kind of doing everything. And they're like, I'm so busy. I just need some, I need some help. I need some help. And, and so we would come in and kind of try to coach them and elevate them to like a senior, like head of performance or like a senior manager's uh, head of performance. 
try and coach them um and and also uh you know do do the work for them in that stage and then just make sure we're transparent and updating them with everything um but you'd be all right and you know some people might be resistant i probably work with you know i probably worked with 15 portfolio companies while i was there probably one or two might have had some resistance um and and so you are you are you, you do i remember taking part of the the because we kept encountering some of these things um like some some things over time and and so we, we 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 brought in like the firm brought in like a change management expert to like how do you do how do you help people through change management how do you help companies through change management because we never want to be like oh we're coming in to to like change everything for you you know we have to make sure that the, uh, the incentives are aligned between the operational team in project a and, and the founders so you know you pick you pick the right team first of all who's like open to this and, and then you just assure them like you're in control this is your company like um well it's actually not kind of like that because you know no one's really in control of coming the board the board you know is um runs the company and the ceo reports the board um but but you, you get the idea like i think is that founders you know are, you know they're still responsible for day-to-day execution they're still responsible for the company, you know, and we want to work with your team. The team is usually receptive. You know, usually the type of people who are working in these projects are people who uh, have like a growth mindset and not like someone who's super close to um, learning new things, right? So, so you, you typically have the right people in there in the first place. But but there is some change management that goes on and typically the framework is um, you come in to the company and uh, whoever is whoever is really open uh to like change you keep like uh elevating them and and talking about how they're they're open to change and you keep demonstrating that you know this is good and then eventually uh other people come along who are like happy to um go through the change management process uh and and then maybe there might be like 10 percent of people who just aren't happy um and you know you try and do the right thing by them all the time um and help upskill you know um but but sometimes unfortunately it's just uh, it doesn't work out like like most things um and you you know you, you help them find another company if, if that's what they choose to do but we would never pressure um we'd never pressure like oh this this person needs to go um we, we, we always came with the mindset of we're here to help people um, and we're here to grow together and learn together. Mm. I've got, well, a number of questions, really. One, perhaps a little bit niche, is how do you, with because you're against a typical VC, investing quite a lot in these companies from a um, staff perspective, or, you know, your, the VC overheads are a lot higher, I imagine, than another VC that doesn't have 100 people on staff to deploy into yep. a business. Do do you know? Do, does that how do the how does the VC recuperate those costs? Is it split between? Yeah, have like you a, talked through that? Yeah, yeah. Have, have you talked through that? Um, and, and everything I'm saying, as far as I'm aware, is is transparent knowledge. I'm not disclosing anything that isn't otherwise uh, secret. Um, so the, the the model basically works like this: is the the partners take a a, a less um, management fee for themselves. Because uh, you have AUM, so so basically the VC model works like this. For those aren't familiar, you know, the the partners go out and they raise money, they raise a fund, and typically they have a two and you know a two and twenty model where um, 
the they have a t- the, the the partners collect a two percent management fee for the for the funds that are under management. So if you have a hundred million under management, you, you're collecting two million under you know for for the for the management fee of of that fund. And what that is supposed to help with is you know pay salaries and any other costs that are associated with with managing funds. Um and 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 the twenty percent is is the percentage of profits that you then the the the, 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 the partners the the firm um you know not partners because partners uh, have to um, distribute profits back to their their limited partners um that they that they get so two two and twenty is, is like the model and so um they took uh of the two percent of the two and twenty the the partners who are at this firm. Took a, a lower amount and, and they basically, um, spread it across as much as they could. It didn't cover everything, but they spread it across as much as they can. And then the other part is like an agency, we just bill out people. Um, but we bill them out at cost. We never, we, we, we weren't like a for profit, um, uh, services firm. We were a bill people out at cost. Um, and the firm only made money when companies were acquired. Um, or yeah, or, or or you know, exited that might be via IPO. From my understanding, none of the firms' investments have IPO. However, um, they lo- lots have been uh, acquired. Um, even to Shopify, um, Ticktail I think was acquired by Shopify as well. So yeah, I've been using Shopify since like 2015 as well. 2016, some of our portfolio companies were on Shopify to begin with. So does that answer your question? Yeah, hundred percent. I think so. Um, just was really interested to see, yeah, where their priorities were in terms of covering that cost. But yeah, yeah seems, exiting, seems exiting. Uh, yeah, and so, and that's why that's why um, the incentives are aligned a bit better than than an agency, for example. Agency model is for the most part. I mean, I mean it's definitely evolved a lot over time. But it, keep it simple. It's like you sell services and you try and you know profit the difference between selling. The service and, and the cost it, 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 it is to, you know, to your business to, to like have the service. So staff, you know, rent, et cetera. Um, and then AG owner makes a profit. So that's perfectly fine business model. Um, and you know, whereas project days, they, they only make money on the exit of, of their investment. And so obviously you want to, um, you know, you, there are things that you might do that, um, with that model. That might um, structure, you know, structure accounts differently um, than than you would as an agency. I'll, g- I'll give you some examples. So, so as an agency, um, you, your model is probably to. I don't. I don't want to come across like an agency bashing. I've worked with plenty of good ones, but I just want to set, talk through the difference of the model and I think how it just aligns a bit better. Um, it is is the agency model is is I guess maybe you want to make as much money. Uh, per account manager. So, so if you have like a Facebook ads account manager, maybe they have five or 10 accounts underneath you or, or whatever that amount is. And so maybe as a result of that, um, maximizing like, uh, accounts, account management per person, or I, I don't even know what the metric is, w- would be like accounts managed per person or like dollar, um, profit per service per person, so, something like that. I, I would assume, um, m- maybe as a result of that, you you structure your accounts in a way that requires less of a touch point um, because you want to um, you want to manage the most amount of people uh, most amount of clients to say 
Um, and, and so you want to, I guess, do things that um, require uh, less attention, um, like a healthy balance with like less attention versus like good um, good outcome. Um, but but it's a sliding scale, right? And so, and so in in the firm we would we would do things that um, just gave the best outcome because maybe I'm just working on one 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 project at the moment, or maybe I'm working on two to three two small ones and and one really big one, um, and I'm working like you know fifty sixty hours a week. So um, I'm not I'm, I'm not aware of any agencies that are you know one person is working on one account um, or, or like one person working on two small ones and, and, and a big one. Um, so, so that's one of the primary, primary difference. And, and an example of that is like, I remember when I was there, I remember working on this, um, uh, one of our portfolio investments called, uh, world Remit. It's an international money transfer company competes with TransferWise. Um, and we had, we were managing between four of our team members in page search. We were managing like 30 million keywords. 30 million. Um, now how is that done? Well, you, you have, um, one account per country. Um, and we had something like 50 countries. Um, so, so that, that's how, that's how, and to do that required four people. Now, now that's four people. That's like four people working on just that one account. And I remember we worked on that for about six months. And so, and then went through a massive growth, growth phase while, while we're doing that. Um, and, and, and that's just the example, I think. Um, of where like we're, we're managing that account at break even for the cost of four people. The cost was break even and we're only trying to, we're, we're doing as best as we can to like make everything as efficient as we can across 50 ad accounts. Um, sorry, 30 ad accounts across 50 countries. Um, uh, 30 million keywords. And the only way you can possibly really do that is, um, if you really have your incentives aligned, I think from like what the exit outcome is and making a profit that way versus um, trying to maximize uh, efficiency in the number of accounts that one person might manage. Um, does that make sense? Yeah. And I think it's aligned. If I was a founder, I would be even more inclined to accept the help of this team because of the fact that they're, safeguarding their own investment and therefore exactly yeah exactly your mentality going into it is i think a lot of the time with agencies there is always that seed inside you that knows that they are a for-profit business and therefore there are going to be occasions where it's better it would be better for you to have someone internally or to but on the whole you hope that the skills they have over time and the exposure that they have nets out in your favor versus yeah. an employment. But I think with that model, you've got a lot more going for you in the fact that, yeah, you know, they've vested money here as well and they've put the people yeah, they believe exactly. are the best yep. to protect that yep. investment. Exactly. So, exactly. And has to um you know, they take their the firm took a board seat as well. So they always have their their interest interest there. Um but yeah, yeah, we um we we we, we would always try and in house people as much as we could too. Because we didn't want to be a service provider forever. Like we know you have to, um, you know, you have to, um, you know, you, you crawl, you walk, then you run. Maybe we would help them um, transition from like walk to run, and then we would. So, so, so that example is a good example. So we're four of us managing uh, thirty million keywords across fifty countries, and 
uh, we would we, we then got them we built that all out and the structure and we got it running smoothly and then we'd be like all right well now now we want to hire people to like maintain what we've built and so then we'd go and hire and bring people in uh, train them uh, fly them over to Berlin from London train them and then like fade out and then move on to something else so like so so we'd like fire ourselves in that regard we'd be like okay we're, the next step for you is to like hire people internally who can do this as well as we can, if not better, because you, you live and breathe the business. Um, you know, you're in the company. Um, you understand the nuances a bit better. Um, and then we, we fire ourselves basically. And then we move on to like another investment. Um, so, so we always, always had the, the best interest of the, of the, um, portfolio company at heart. You are in the D2C space. If you have a brand that's selling online and you haven't at least had a demo with Sendlane, then one of two things is objectively true about you. You like setting money on fire. You like making your life more difficult. If neither of those things are true and you are an e-commerce brand and you are selling online, you do send emails, you do send SMS, you do have reviews or at least like to collect reviews, then there is no reason for you not to at least have had a demonstration with Sendlane. They are built for e-commerce. They are the most modern platform with the best features, in my opinion, at the lowest cost. I mean, I'm not really sure what would be holding you back. Please go and check them out. Show notes below. They have an event coming up. You can still get tickets, I believe, for that event in San Diego. A link to the Commerce Roundtable in the show notes below as well. Please do go and check out Sendlane if you haven't already. Back to the episode. Here's one for you. I've been a little bit exposed to VCs. I worked with a VC a little while, uh, for a little while. Uh, I've pitched VCs as an agency, trying to work with VCs back in another life uh, on their portfolio companies. And the overriding impression for me is that it is a very data-centric environment. Absolutely Mm -hmm. understand why that would be the case. But it sounds sounds to me like you've got the worst of, of both worlds as a CMO because you've got a founder that didn't employ you themselves or a business that didn't choose you before the investment. And then you've got the VC who is, my assumption, adverse to risk and consistently looking for you to be able to justify almost everything that you do with a a level of depth that is beyond gut feeling, which is often where Mm -hmm. a founder gets to that place where they're going to need some investment. You know, they need part of what we're going to talk about today is bringing in structure. So, how did you feel operating as a fractional CMO in those environments? Was it heavily data driven? Were you having to justify every move you made? And then ultimately, did that make you a less risky or a more risk averse marketer? Yeah. So, just to be clear, I wasn't a fractional CMO in that environment. Um, right. I, I was. I was in the paid search team. Um, uh, I was like a senior paid search marketer uh so paid search google ads basically um and and but but my but we had a cmo in the team um and and she 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 would be a fractional cmo to our portfolio companies um and so i reported into her and she would um but but to your point um uh, so I'm, i'm only now a fractional cmo and i learned about the concept of fractional cmo through through the venture capital firm that i was with but to, to your two question, um, we we had I mean we had a business intelligence team. We we had an entire uh, department at the this VC firm dedicated to data analytics, and this is before companies like 
it, it's a lot it's a lot easier now than it was back then. Um, you know, this is before your triple whales and your north beams existed, where you can just like plug in, you know, your Shopify, connect your Shopify, connect your Facebook and Google accounts, and it, you know, represents data in in like a pretty pretty good way. Like that would have been great back then. We didn't have any of that, and those those platforms didn't exist. So the team there had to had to build out their own business intelligence competencies, and so they would build out. Um, so, so part of the investment would be, um, you know, how do you allocate some of this capital? Well, we, we would recommend, um, you know, how to do the marketing split for Facebook and Google, um, and what percent of marketing, etc., dependent on the type of investment or industry you are. Um, but also, w- w- mostly, mostly, and I, and by mostly, I mean not all the time. Um, we we would ask um we would pit we, we had to like pitch why we thought this was a good idea for them to have like business intelligence infrastructure and so we we the project aid uh, has an internal business intelligence team they um would uh like take their bi internal um dashboards that that they had built and they would um uh you like port over and, and um develop it for our portfolio investments um and that's actually um where my um my scorecard um frame its framework comes from uh it, it doesn't come exactly from them because it, it's it's structured very differently the the type of data i use is is different but um the concept and like the framework of having like this core um uh dashboard and infrastructure dashboard that is customizable um and 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 Visualize the data in a, in a certain way. Um, actually, comes from the the business intelligence team that I work with at Project Day. So an example would be, um, you know, I had part of my OKRs when I was at Project Day. You know, sometimes is we we want to automate the. You know, we're, we're using we're mostly using Excel spreadsheets. Um, and so we had to get really good at Excel. We have like the BI team like um, send daily updates on this massive spreadsheet with like multiple amounts of tab, tabs reporting wasn't as easy back then. The data infrastructure just wasn't, wasn't as good back then with like even Shopify or, um, or, or we had our own, you know, infrastructure, e-commerce infrastructure that we used as well. Um, so, so just the, the, the data structure and the reporting just wasn't as, as, as like polished as it is now. Um, and, and it's easy to use. So part of, part of my OKRs for several, um, you know, cycles with this VC firm was, um, okay, well, we want you to automate how we do our Google ads reporting for one of our portfolio companies or two or three of our portfolio companies. Work with the BI team to, to do that, um, et cetera. Um, and, and so I, I would, I would work very close with the BI team to, um, like in, like, um, uh, integrate, uh, the data that I was using and, and, and the frameworks that I'd work with and, and help develop, um, and integrate that in, into their custom reporting. And then we, we had these templates that we'd use and we'd just recycle the templates over and over for these new portfolio companies that we invested in. And, and they'll get better and they get a little bit better and they get a little bit better and they get a little bit better. And then that's kind of what I've, um, been, been working on for almost 10 years now to like get to this dashboard that you, that you saw on Twitter was like that. So this dashboard is like the evolution of, me doing this uh for almost 10 years uh like like this dashboard concept for almost 10 years i think someone retweeted it at the time and i saw it and it flashed and whenever i see a tweet like that when someone's broken something down you can instantly tell when it's good quality um and i clicked into it and and i was hooked on that first uh the first part of the thread 
And I was like, man, I don't think I've ever seen anything like this before. Not data presented visually in a way like this. Uh, I'm used to seeing the dashboards. Uh, but what I found really, really intriguing was also how you were looking at it across the whole purchase journey and how you were bringing lots of different components of data together that gave you a bit more of a vision. So this is a really good time. And if you've tuned into this episode, that was almost 40 minutes of an introduction to Tyson, but I think needed because to yeah, understand let's talk where about this, the dashboard. <laughs> <laughs> but to understand yeah. where it came from, where, you know, where this has all been derived from and get an understanding of the background, the environment, I think it's really important and just adds to it in, in any case. So now we're going to move over and we're going to transition. So if you're not listening, if you're only listening to this podcast, I would advise you probably to take a pause at this point because Tyson is going to share the uh, scorecard on his screen and we're going to talk through it and I'm going to play the role of uh, uh, a variance of uh, different founders and operators in DTC and ask some questions hopefully that will get you the answers you want but ultimately we're just going to have a little tour through this incredible scorecard. So Tyson just give us a quick uh, explainer as to why a company, a DTC company or a commerce company might want to utilize something similar to this. Yeah. Um, can you see my dashboard? Yeah, can we can see it. We can see it. Wonderful. So th there's there's a few there's a few reasons, and this has gone through like lots of iterations over the years. But I think I've come to a point where it, it really brings. Um, first of all, it, it really brings a lot of transparency to the uh, for the business and to the team, and so. A lot of the time, a lot of, you know, the team operates in its own silos. So, you know, you have your know, Facebook or media buyer team that they're looking at, um, you know, they're looking in platform. Maybe they're a bit more sophisticated. They might have some attribution tool or some media mix modeling. But in general, they're spending probably like 80 to 90% of their time in platform. Um, and so, so they're not really looking at other metrics like, um, uh, like contribution margin, usually they're not looking at other metrics like that. Maybe they're a bit more sophisticated, or the, or you know maybe have the 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 um, creative director who is is or creative strategist who is creating lots of ads and, and you know doesn't really see the business impact that those ads have when they're launched or, or new new campaigns are launched. You know maybe have. Your email marketers in the same position as a media buyer that they, they, you know, they're living in their their email platform, um, and 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 they're not really seeing uh, what's happening across the entire business. How do you know questions start to arrive? Like, how do we go yesterday? How how did um what was the profit yesterday? Do we did we meet target? Um, so so all these questions start to arise, and and it can take the form of like waiting for like a weekly meeting to happen. Which, which in my view is like too slow of a feedback loop, or or, or it could take the form in worst cases monthly, um, if if the team has only um, made transparent how the business is doing uh, every time the P and L comes out, even even if they're part of those meetings at all. So so what the one of the main aim of the dashboards is to do is to bring uh, bring bring business transparency to the team, so everyone can see you know how many sessions there are what was the conversion rate how many orders what's the aov um you know what was the average average quantity of, of items uh, purchased what's a new customer um sends a new customer net sales to return customer net sales every time do we send an email does a percentage return customer net sales 
um, increase? And if so, well, you know, there's probably the emails are probably incremental, and there's other ways to look at that as well. Um, you know, what's the MER? Are, are we are we on are we on target? Um, are, we, are we within the range that we, that we want to be at? Um, what's the discount? Are we discounting too heavily? Um, is five percent where we want to be at? Um, just give me give us a step by step through why you chose. So I can see I can see the dashboard, and in the lighter grey along the top that axis there, you've got the different column names. Can you just walk us through each one and why that you've chosen to include yeah, those sure. specifically in the dash? Sure. So I'll start from the bottom here. Um, it, it's the most relevant because it, it's the current week. So so here we've got current week, and you know the, I define current week by Monday. Um, so you got you got you know the the day Monday, the date November twenty seventh. Um, this is this is in Australian t- um, time, so just um, take that into consideration. And, and twenty twenty three, the year. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So so it's it's um, it's Thursday. So imagine that imagine you as a uh, part of a marketing team or even a founder of a business. You want to know how did you go yesterday? Um, so so you log into this dashboard and you and you go, okay, this is how we went today. Um, and and what do I mean by how we went today? So, so it starts off as like um, uh, a funnel, right? Because because metrics metrics in isolation aren't really that useful. Um, you know, what was our conversion rate yesterday? Okay, it was this, but what does that mean? Is that good or bad? What was our MER yesterday? Okay, it was this number, but is that good or bad? Um, and so you never want to look at metrics, and this is the other thing this dashboard does, is you never want to look at metrics in isolation. Um, you want to look uh, at metric, you, you want to look at the relationship between metrics um, and and this allows you to be able to diagnose issues or unlock insights um, as well. So so th- this is a funnel, okay? So like most things uh, in e-commerce, it's a funnel. So let's go through the columns one by one as as a funnel. So sessions, um, you know, people come to your website um, as a first touch point. Um, you know, maybe they add something to the car, and so you look at the add to car, and you go, okay, so what percentage of sessions add to car? And you can see here um, every day you have like a like the, your add to cart percentage, um, and you have either the next one after someone hopefully adds something to the cart they check out. So you have the checkout percentage as a percentage of sessions. So the number of checkouts as a percentage of sessions, and then you know you have your conversion rate. So uh, so that's all pretty self-explanatory. Someone comes to your website, they add something to their cart, they check out. And, and then what was the percentage of people who, who successfully um, checked out? So that, that's pretty self-explanatory. But straight away, what this allows you to do is, let's say, for example, um, you made a change on your website to the, to, to the you know, your product um, PDP, product description page, and your um, it, it really impacted your add to cart, either a positive way or a negative way. Positively, you'll see that, okay, um, you know, the, the add to cart percentage is, is, is increased. Great. That must be a, um, you know, that must have been a positive change. Now, you know, obviously you would use some A-B testing software to, to properly um, determine that, but but you should be able to see it through this metrics as well. Um, but let's say you don't have any A-B testing software and maybe you made a change to your product description page um, and, and your add to cart massively drops from like, you know, 6% to like 4%. So quit, so straight away next day, you'll be able to see that drop and you'll be like, what's going on here? How come the add to cart hasn't dropped? You can check with the media buyers. Do we, do we, are we scaling? Do we change our traffic source? Um, do, do we have something out of stock? Um, no. Okay. So you can diagnose things really quickly and go, ah, oh, it was actually that change that we made the other day that dropped the add to cart rate. Okay. Let's look at why the drop changed. 
um, you know, the button doesn't work or, or you know, if on mobile, it doesn't even show the button above the folder wherever it's meant to be. So straight away, you can diagnose um, issues really quickly. Same with the checkout, you can diagnose really quickly. Um, and, then, and then we have here, you know, after conversion rate, you have orders, you know, pretty self-explanatory, the number of orders that people made. Um, what was average value per order? Um, and, and then per day, um, average quantity. So this is just basically how many, uh, like what was the total, uh, what was the net uh, number of items per cart? And, and this, this usually stays pretty consistent unless there's a, a, a big discount um, when, when, you know, there's an incentive to purchase more. Um, it, it stays pretty consistent. Um, and then you have here um, uh, new customer percentage of net sales versus returning customer percentage of net sales. And this is really important to monitor because um, uh, maybe, uh, you, you know, you, you always want to be, you always want to have a bias to acquiring new customers because if you don't, um, you, you, you will just, and if you don't have good retention in this case, 10% returning customer is, is not great in this example data set. Um, so, so you're probably not stacking the cohorts pretty efficiently here. Um, so you really need this this new uh, customer percentage of um, net sales to, to continue to grow. And if this starts to or, or maintain high and it starts to drop, it also gives a signal of like, okay, maybe you're uh, spending more money on retargeting campaigns than, than like prospecting campaigns. So, so it's a bit of a, um, a barometer on that. Or, or if it changes, okay, do we send the email? Okay, that's why we had a massive spike in new customer. Uh, so returning customers versus the drop in, in new customer. So it's, it's just a health check to check that, um, you know, we are growing new customer net sales. Um, and why I like to view it as a percentage and not a number is because if you just view it as a number, it's hard to tell. It, it's just hard, you know, as we have, we have an issue, um, calculating percentages in our head over big numbers. Like, for example, this number 103,000. Okay. What's like 89.5% of um, hundred, hundred, um, uh, three thousand. You know, I, I don't know off the top of my head. Maybe you're better at math than me. But um, so I, I just like to view it as a percentage of total rather than the numbers to see um, to, to see are we just acquiring new customer percentage? Um, what what is the net sales percentage of of um new customer revenue? Um, and, and are we tracking good? All right, that's the end of part one with Tyson. Coming up in part two. We get into the weeds of this scorecard. We break down all of the metrics. I challenge him on some of those metrics and I ask him to justify why some of them exist and why people should make decisions in the way they do using this type of data. So all of that is coming up in part two. Special thanks to Rewind and special thanks to Sendlane for sponsoring the show. See you in part two next week. <laughs>